found in the most unexpected places. Uh, Nobody expects to find salvation in the Walmart parking lot. Uh, You certainly don't expect salvation and deliverance to take the form of of a cowboy, (laughs) uh, fully equipped with horse and lasso riding through the Walmart parking lot, but that's exactly what happened here in this episode. Uh, Sometimes salvation is found in the least likely places. I guess that could be the the tagline for this video. It could certainly be the the heading for the chapter in in Luke 2. We'll look at that here uh, in just a moment. As Joe has already told you, we began a new series this, this week. It'll carry us through the month of December, and it's simply entitled Glory in the Highest. And, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 2 for these next couple of weeks. And we're going we're gonna to really focus in on, on the words of these, these angels. There's an angel who appears and announces the birth of Jesus, and he uses a few titles to, to describe uh, what's going on. And so these shepherds receive this, this good news about Christ. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll focus on each of these titles individually here that we'll, we'll see in Luke 2. But, but as, we, as we get started here with this, with this whole series, I thought it would be appropriate for us to just spend a little time focused on the Word of God. And so Luke chapter 2, we're, we're actually going to, to begin in, in verse 1 of Luke 2 and make our way through this episode as recorded in Luke's Gospel. This is God's Word for us this morning. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, Time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths, not clothes, and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the field nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them in her heart. Excuse me. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The chapter here in Luke 2 begins with with an important name, and that's the name of Caesar Augustus. Uh, The birth of Jesus takes place against the backdrop of, of the great Roman emperor's administration. Uh, this is really no, no minor detail. It's, it's hugely significant for Luke's narrative. 
Uh, Caesar Augustus, of course, history uh, tells us, was widely regarded in divine terms at the time of, of the birth of Jesus. And in fact, oftentimes around this, this period here, that, which we're reading in the first century, to refer to good news, there was, there was a, a connotation when you heard that phrase good news, your mind immediately thought to Rome. Your mind snapped back to what was going on in Rome. You thought about Caesar. Uh, one of the places we can see this is, is on this uh, stone inscription that dates all the way back to the first century, and it hails the birth of Caesar Augustus this way. The birth date of our God has signaled the beginning of good news for the world. So from the opening lines of Luke chapter 2, we're taken back in time. We're transported to this, to this world where the one who sits on the throne in Rome, Caesar himself, is understood to be a divine figure, And he is the one who brings good news. In the first century at the birth of Jesus, that understanding of good news would have been unmistakable. But here in the Gospels, we find find the angels declaring a subversive message, certainly a a countercultural message, because as you read through Luke's Gospel, Caesar Augustus is really a minor player. He's, he's a bit player. He's, he has a cameo role in Luke's gospel. He's mentioned here in chapter 2, verse 1, and then never mentioned again. This figure whose arrival was hailed as good news, this one who is considered to be divine, he's, he's hardly mentioned at all. And Luke is more interested in the birth of another ruler. He's more interested in the arrival of Jesus, the one whom the angels proclaim as good news of great joy for all the people. And so here at the beginning of Luke 2 and at the beginning of this series, we can see that Caesars come and, and Caesars go, but, but the good news about Jesus Christ, the good news is eternal. The angels ascribe these three titles to Jesus. We just read them in verse 11. We'll just return to them here now again. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. And so for the next three weeks, we'll spend our time focusing on each of these three titles. And today we focus on what it means for Jesus to be the Savior. Uh, in the first century, salvation was a pretty popular topic. And in fact, it was, it was a topic that was so widely discussed, there were a lot of different ways that people understood what you meant by the idea of salvation. Uh, There's one uh, understanding of salvation that was directly related to to philosophy. So Seneca the Younger, the renowned philosopher of of Stoic philosophy, uh, he characterized the age here leading up to the first century as a time when men turned to philosophy in order to find salvation and deliverance. He said that what makes us unique as humans is that we simultaneously have this love-hate relationship with our vices, now, in the, in the Bible, we would refer to those not as vices, but as sins. But using uh, Seneca's language, he would say we, we simultaneously love and hate our vices. He says we throw ourselves into whatever particular vice uh, we, we might find favorable, and we do so, we just rush headlong into that, thinking that we find salvation through indulgence and through self-gratification. But, but Seneca taught that that kind of indulgence is, is oftentimes, it just leads to, it leads to dissatisfaction. It's a bottomless pit, kind of like we talked about last week with that counterfeit God of greed. 
know, how much is enough? Well, no matter how much we get, it seems as if we always want just a little bit more. And so Seneca said that when we, when we indulge in those vices, then our, our guilt begins to accrue. And then we stop loving those vices. We begin to hate them. And we put them off for a while until we inevitably snap back and indulge again. And it just round and round it goes, right? And so Seneca, among others, preached that a certain type of salvation was available, albeit it was the kind of salvation that would come through the pursuit of virtue, through the acquisition of more knowledge. If you wanted to really find deliverance and salvation, then you needed to discipline yourself to correspond with what he happened to be teaching in his philosophical school. Kind of convenient, right? So there's this philosophical understanding of what salvation means. It means to basically adopt a particular mindset. And that's one way that was common of thinking of salvation in the first century. But that's not the only way. In addition to that philosophical understanding, there was also one that was focused mainly on on political rulers and namely what they could bring about for you. Uh, One scholar says that evidence of this this widespread longing for salvation can be found in the number of of different political leaders and rulers who, who ascribed that title of savior to themselves. He says any ruler who could bring to life any kind of peace and safety and security or even any ruler who men hoped might bring those things, received this title of Savior. So again, we've already seen some of the ways that Caesar Augustus was referred to. Uh, In in particular, the Roman emperor was understood as one who brought this kind of salvation. There's an ancient inscription that comes from uh, the city of Athens. And in this inscription, it's referring to Julius Caesar as both Savior and Benefactor. Another one from Ephesus describes Julius Caesar as God made manifest the universal savior of all humanity. We've already seen some of the propaganda that was uh, circulating at the time of the birth of Jesus about Caesar Augustus. Uh, One inscription that dates all the way back to 2 BC hails Augustus as the protecting God and savior of the whole human race. Okay, so if the Stoic philosophy was salvation and deliverance comes from uh, focusing on a particular mindset, then here we see the imperial concept of salvation, and it's focused on who sits on the throne, what Caesar can bring about for you. Oftentimes, it was salvation that came at the point of the sword. Hey, I'm your savior because I'm going to go out and win wars for you and expand the borders of the kingdom. All hail Caesar. This is the salvation of Rome. So we have these kinds of concepts kind of circulating. And at the birth of Jesus, though, at the birth of Jesus, we see salvation being expressed to us on God's terms. You see, for God, salvation is not primarily philosophical, as Seneca would have us believe. For God, salvation is, is not primarily political, like Caesar would have us believe. But for God, salvation is deeply personal. And that's the message of the incarnation. That's the message of God in the flesh there in Luke 2. That he would leave the wonders of the throne room of heaven and that he would enter into human history. That he becomes one of us in order to save all of us. What a beautiful and profound truth that's being being uh, communicated to us here in Luke 2, all focused on Jesus as the Savior. 
But it's deeply personal. It's deeply personal when God takes on flesh. It's personal because there's nothing more personal than a name. You know, you, your name, it communicates not only your identity, but there's so much meaning and significance that's bound up in that name. I, Sonny and I could tell you about the names that we have chosen and selected for our three children and how we went through and spent so much time trying to find just the perfect name for those, for those kids. And so we, we did this thing, you know, we bought these books and we go through and we read about the meanings of different names and we, we mix and match, you know, first name and middle name to kind of get the perfect combination of syllables and sounds and, and which first name and middle name goes well with our last name. I mean, these are conversations we were having, you know, 10, 12 years ago. And, and we, we were more concerned than even all of that, what was more pressing for us was finding a name or names that had significant meaning. We wanted those names to really count for something. It's one of the few times in life you have an opportunity to, to name some, something, someone, there's something eternal going on there. And so for us, those names were not just accidental. We didn't just draw them out of a hat. No, they were purposeful. They have meaning. And the child in Luke 2, he has a name, Right? And in the same way, that name is not accidental. It's not just drawn out of a hat. It's not haphazard. No, the name of this child holds so much significance for his identity and also the eternal reality of what he comes to do. So the Gospels tell us that Joseph and Mary are to be married. In our language, we'd say they're engaged. But come to find out, Mary is is pregnant. Before the wedding, this news kind of breaks, and the Gospels tell us that Joseph decided to to quietly put Mary away, to to not bring her disgrace or shame. The the Gospel says that he he does this because he's a, a righteous man. He doesn't want to expose her to public disgrace. So he just quietly terminates the relationship, right? But an angel of the Lord appeared to him. And this is recorded not in Luke's gospel, but over in Matthew. But the angel of the Lord appears to to, uh, Joseph, and he has this to say about what's going on. He says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So we have here this, this uh, divine uh, ideal that's communicated through the, uh, through the angel that this child must be named Jesus. What's the significance? Well, because he will save people from their sins. Uh, Jesus is the Greek form of a Hebrew name, Yeshua or Yeshua, depending on where you want to put the accent. All right? We know that name more commonly in English as Joshua. Yeshua, though, was a very common, very popular name among Hebrew males, and the name means Yahweh is salvation. God saves. God rescues, or God delivers, all right? One scholar says that this name is the oldest name known to us that contains the divine name. There's no name that is older that carries this idea of Yahweh's deliverance and Yahweh's name, all right? He goes on to say, uh, this name affirms the uniqueness of Israel's God as the one in whom humankind may safely trust for salvation. 
So again, salvation on God's terms, it's not about what Seneca says or what Caesar Augustus is doing. It's about what God is doing in the, in the birth of this child, and his name carries all the significance and meaning in the world. He is Jesus, Savior of the world. So you can imagine, every time his name is uttered, it is a proclamation of God's power to save. So every time Mary calls out to Jesus that it's dinner time, Yeshua, Yeshua, every time she calls out that it's dinner time, she's making a declaration, right? That God is powerful to save. Every time Joseph and and Jesus are working there in, in Joseph's workshop as a carpenter, and Joseph calls out to his son, hey, hand me that tool. Every time he calls him by name, hand me the hammer, you know, whatever. He says his name, he's making a declaration, right, of the power of God to save. And every time that name is uttered on the streets of Nazareth, every time the people cry out his name on the streets of Jerusalem, even today as we gather here and as we sing Jesus, there's something about that name. We're making a declaration of the power that is found in this name because Jesus Christ is the Savior of humanity. It's what Simon Peter says over in Acts chapter 4, the salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But as we stated earlier, salvation is found in the most unexpected places at times. That's certainly the case when it comes to the birth of of our Savior. So he's born into a world that is captivated by these philosophical and political understandings of salvation, but the salvation from God takes this deeply personal form, the omnipotent, all-powerful God becoming a vulnerable child. There is nothing more vulnerable than a baby, nothing more dependent on someone else for every need. Imagine what that was like. The Son of God, who knows no need, who is self-sufficient in himself, taking on flesh, becoming one of us so that he might save all of us. He leaves the throne room of heaven, and he's he's transfigured from from there in all the glory. (laughs) He's transfigured from there down into a dirty and dingy and probably pretty smelly manger. Why? Because this is what salvation looks like. On God's terms. And even the the declaration, uh, the broadcasting of this news, it doesn't come in the way we might expect. You know, it's not like there's uh, an APB put out to the powers in Jerusalem or Rome. No, instead the the angels show up and they, they declare this to like lowly shepherds. Sometimes their testimony wouldn't even count in court because they were kind of considered lowlifes. And yet they're the ones who received the glorious good news that the world has changed because of what's happened in that manger, that a Savior has been born. (laughs) Why does God do this? Well, he does this because this is salvation on God's terms. And salvation on God's terms comes to us in the most unexpected places, in the most unexpected form. So our information about the birth of Jesus comes primarily from Matthew and Luke's Gospels. In addition to recording the information about the birth narratives, uh, we, we also find in those two Gospels, we find the genealogies of Jesus. And, uh, you know, that's significant because uh, over in, in Matthew's Gospel, he's wanting to trace the lineage of Jesus back to Abraham because of Matthew's Jewish influence, obviously. Uh, Luke goes one step further. He traces that lineage all the way back to Adam. Luke, as the Gentile writer, it's understandable why he would want to do that. Uh, but we have these genealogies. 
Most of the time, when we come to those genealogies in Scripture, we, we do what? <laughs> we kind of skim over them, right? Because it's a lot of so-and-so begat so-and-so and this name and that name, and it's a lot of consonants, and you know, how do you pronounce that one? And it's easy just to kind of skim over, right? But those genealogies are really significant. For one, both genealogies point out that Jesus is a true son of David, which will be important for us next week when we talk about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, the anointed king, okay? So that's one. But also, as you trace back through the family tree of Jesus, and you look at some of the names that are found there, uh, Jesus has some really shady characters in his family tree. You know, if you go back through and you read through some of the names that, that, that pop up in this, uh, this Rolodex of his family's history, is some of the ugliest episodes in the entire Bible. And these are only the people we know about. <laughs> Who knows what's back there that just wasn't written about in the scriptures. There's just a few of the Lord's ancestors. One was Judah, one of the sons of, of Jacob. Uh, Genesis 38, there's this whole ugly episode with Judah. Uh, I've never heard a sermon preached on this. And it's understandable because it's one of those we just wish wasn't in our Bibles. But uh, Judah slept with his daughter-in-law. And, and they, had, um, they had children. And uh, on top of that, what makes it even uglier uh, is that, that he did so believing that she was a prostitute. It's Genesis 38. Uh, her name is Tamar, and she's in the family tree there too, a Gentile who bore two sons out of incest uh, by deceiving her father-in-law, tricking him into sleeping with her. So that's, I mean, that's one. Uh, we get to Rahab, who's referred to in Scripture as a Canaanite prostitute. She's also in the family tree of Jesus. Uh, Ruth is a Moabite, and although she has, uh, in, in the text, she has a lot of, of character and integrity, the fact that she's a Moabite calls to mind how the Moabites even began. You read that ugly episode in Genesis 19, which began with Lot uh, sleeping with one of his uh, daughters. And then you have David and Bathsheba. David, the king who committed murder, adultery before that, and tried to cover it all up. Uh, it's right there in black and white in our Bibles. Some of which we probably wouldn't let our children read if it weren't in the Bible. It's really remarkable that this is the cast of characters uh, that would become some of the great-great-grandmothers and great-great-grandfathers of our Lord. Oftentimes, I know we cringe when we, we come to, to some of those stories in our Bibles, but I just bring it up to say to you that according to uh, the lineage here, according to the Gospels uh, and what the Gospel writers say, these are Jesus' kinfolk. These are his people. And like his name, you know, that, that lineage, the lineage is not accidental. His name isn't accidental. The time of his birth wasn't accidental. And the, the means through which he was born is not accidental. And even the people he was born to is not accidental. It was the sovereign choice of God to bring Jesus into the world through such a messy lineage. The question is, why? Why does God do that? And I think the answer is, he had no other choice, right? Because every family tree and every lineage is just as messy, you know? My family tree and your family tree, there's a whole lot of stuff way back there that I just as soon forget about. 
There's a whole lot of stuff back there I don't even know about. And I, and I don't necessarily even want to know about. But I know this, that we're commonly bound together by a couple of things, and uh, one of the common denominators as humans is we are sinful. We are broken, and we are weak, and our lives are messy. Uh, We are in need of salvation. We are in need of deliverance. We are in need of a Savior. So the question, why does God bring the Savior into the world through such a messy family tree? The answer is he, he really didn't have much choice. Because every family tree has some degree of dysfunction, one kind or another. I love this quote. Jesus Christ was willing to come from a humiliating lineage, a lineage his father chose for him, to show us that no past is so shameful that God cannot make it beautiful. There is no past so shameful that God cannot make it beautiful. And that's where this ugly family tree is actually a word of good news. You know, that's where this ugly family tree comes to us as a word of grace and hope amid all the the messiness of our lives. Because Jesus comes to us in the midst of, of all this brokenness, in the midst of all this messiness. He's not scared off by it. In fact, he becomes one of us and he identifies with these people as his family, as his kind. This is my family tree, Jesus is saying, when he willfully takes on flesh and becomes one of us in order to save all of us. So he takes up all those ugly chapters in the Bible that we just assume wish weren't there, and he takes up all those those ugly episodes that Judah and Tamar, right, and David and Bathsheba, he he binds up all of those, and he takes up all those ugly episodes in my life, and all those things back there that I wish weren't there, and all those ugly episodes in your life, and all of that, he brings it all, and he puts it on the table, and he says, this is what I've come to save you from from your transgression and from your sin, from your vices, if you want to use that word, whatever you want to call it, Jesus puts it all on the line. He puts it all on the table. Everything that's under the rug that we've swept there, everything that's in that closet that we've we've kind of thrown away the key and we hope nobody ever goes in there, all of that stuff Jesus exposes and puts it on the table. Why? Because that's who he is. Because he is Jesus. He is the Savior of the world. Wonderful.